most certainly lies a dark moment between here and there, by Ghost of Anne Bonny and Short John Silver. Summary Translation of my first work in this fandom. Flint has a think during his stay in the Nassau Fort. A cross between Season 4, Episode 5, a famous song by Skriabin and Taras Shevchenko's poem, Tu me moyi, tu me moyi, with a dash of Adam Mitzkevich and his poem, Nie Pavnochich. Notes First ever fic in the Black Sails fandom. Many thanks to my friend Deck for helping me figure out what book it was that Flint had in the fort. Zoe, for the old maps of New Providence Island, and Ghost of Anne Bonny, for beta reading and helping me translate. This would have been impossible without you. Inspired by my own insomnia and all the light and darkness themes that are so prominent in the show. There most certainly lies a dark moment between here and there. Flint couldn't sleep. It wasn't that he was completely unable to close his eyes until the morning, but the meager few hours he would manage to steal from the endless darkness in order to feel peace, at least for a brief moment, those could hardly be called sleep. The nightmares with Miranda's apparition haven't visited him since that night at the Maroon camp when he offered their queen a deal and declared war on the English. No, it wasn't the ghosts and visions perturbing his mind, hardly unperturbed as it is. Thoughts consumed him under the cover of the night, rolled over him like dark waters, waves dragging a ship whose hull was staved by cannon fire to the bottom of the sea. His mind never quieted, like a swarm of insects, buzzed like bees whose hive was stirred up by a bear. And among that thrum, he could make out the descant of one song that wouldn't cease. He might still be alive. The book that Flint's hand was still holding by inertia. Force of habit, though there was no use from it in the dark. The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. A gift from Miranda. Was the only reminder of him still to be found in the fort's cell. Despite the fact that its only resemblance of the Marcus Aurelius volume so dear to his heart was limited to the cover's color, nobody knew what had happened to meditations, whether it was lost during the battle in Nassau Harbor, where the governor's obstruction led them into a trap that nearly cost the crew their ship and nearly cost him silver. Ever since that moment, and until the day he climbed up that hill and slit the redcoat's throat to find Silver alive and well, Flint's world was a valley flooded by mist, white and opaque like milk. Between their losses, Billy's betrayal, the conflict at the plantation where Bones pointed guns at him, Maudy, their men, Flint barely was aware of himself, never mind his possessions. Maybe Charles was right after all. Being so skeptical and dismissive of attachment to things, physical, material things, fragile and impermanent, something he was told once by the late Mr. Scott, truly a king behind both thrones, though Flint at the time had no idea just how apt that characterization was. Scott spoke of transience, change, 
flow of time, of impermanence being the only permanent thing on this earth. Perhaps he was right too. At that moment, it seemed that the flow of time had taken everything from him. And would there be any point in continuing this account? Mari probably wouldn't even remotely ask herself that question at this stage. Nothing is more important to her than her cause, the holy duty before her people to settle the account with the past and to give them a future. But Flint, if he were to be completely honest with himself, needed the fight to be personal at the core, for him to be passionate about it. Just like eons ago, as he stood up from his seat in the Hamilton estate and told Alfred to leave his own house, once it became personal. He was willing to lay it all on the altar of Thomas's dream, for it had become close and dear to his heart by then. But now, after a long ten years, the last of which was filled with doubts and contemplations, whether it was worth it to keep down this path at all, had he not betrayed yet again that which the two, the three of them with Miranda, had started once, after all this time, he was at some point certain that he couldn't keep walking. The path before him seemed errant and dark, and the lantern that glimmered at the end of it, acting as a soul-guiding light, had been doused altogether. If it weren't for one short speech from Silver one dark night at the camp, who knows, maybe he'd never have seen that light flicker again. Quite odd, Flint concedes, that this yesterday's stranger... No one from nowhere, belonging to nothing, of whose past only snippets were known, crumbs that he was willing to scatter to whomever dared ask. Since when has he taken that place? Could one even compare? The book slips out of Flint's hand, and quietly, though the sound reverberated so distinctly in the dark and silent cell, clatters onto the floor. He'd forgotten he was even holding it. The noise jolted him out of the daymare mist, but this time it was no daymare, no delirium. He really catches himself on a thought that losing silver, albeit for a short while, impacted him to a comparable degree akin to—no, this is utterly ridiculous. Flint's fingertips rub at his brow. He picks up the volume from the cold stone floor. No— this must be insomnia playing tricks on his mind. But the joy of that instant, when, in the midst of their strategic meetings, he learned that John was alive, and surely hunted, with the governor's vassal putting a bounty on his head. How about that? The joy and hope he felt then could be put in the same category as the anticipation of his reunion with Thomas, returning to London after three months apart which felt twice as long. John, he spoke to the empty room. Sounds a bit unnatural. Odd. Rolls off the tongue strangely. Flint never called him that. Not in front of the men. Nor when they were alone. Only in his thoughts. And only later, just after... Although what was so odd about it? He called his quartermaster Gates Hal only... Once... In the recent few years. Just soon before killing him. No, this comparison was even worse. Anywhere he looked in Flint's past, there was always a void. 
a dark abyss left behind by those dear to him. Thomas, Miranda, Gates, and not just for one of them, the latter that was indeed on his consciousness, but for all of their deaths he had blamed himself to a degree. Maybe that's why Silver's words that night, before the battle, had stung so much. And the events several days ago, in the obstructed harbor, only added poisonous roots to the pot in which the potion of his guilt boiled and stirred. The understanding that he'd never be able to keep those he loves away from harm, and it had been better if they never became... What? What were they? Captain and quartermaster? Friends? Partners in crime? Future foes? one of which would inevitably have to give way to the other one day and walk off into the shadows. He remembered how that very night on Maroon Island, Silver compared himself to the line of Flint's partners, insinuating himself as successor. Partners. No. That sounds too loud, too pompous. But since then, their bond couldn't be described as purely friendship, let alone merely a working relationship but the right word refused to come. And once again he catches himself on a thought and a choice of word. Those he loves. Is that so? Was that the reason why he had nearly plunged himself into the water, leaving behind his men, and only the realization that there wasn't a way to explain it to them if he'd left them to continue the fight without him for one man? Only that reminder had stopped him then. Once, during one of their training sessions, Silver had asked him, Could that which you know of me, what I'm able to show you, be enough? What he really was asking was, Would I be enough? And Flint didn't know what to answer then. But now, after the past week's events, after the harbor... After Underhill, doubt gnawed at him even more fervently. He couldn't abandon his men, abandon Mahdi and their cause. After what he'd seen on her island, after meeting her people, it was as if his eyes were opened anew, reorienting to the new light. In offering the queen that deal, he was first and foremost thinking about the beneficial outcome for both parties, or at least aimed at convincing them to see allies in his men and himself. But even during his speech, sitting across from Mahdi and her mother, he was alight with the desire to deal such a devastating blow to the Empire that the whole world would see what it is their joined resistance was capable of achieving. Flint could imagine that this goal took precedent for Mahdi. It wasn't a choice or option. The goal to fight for their freedom when at least this small plot of land, for all of them, but first of all for her people, because their freedom was ripped away from them with roots, and in a most painful, cruel way, to show the empires that they aren't here to stay. Their time will come. Their existence is not inevitable. And there'd be a time after them. He could entrust that to her, even if he could no longer keep fighting himself. The cause was in good hands with her. John was in good hands. Well, 
There it is again. The name he never called Silver out loud. And maybe never will. Was that even his real name at all? Flint's mind returns again and again, like tidal waves to the shore, to their sparring on the cliff and their conversation. Who were you? I don't know who you truly are. The difference between you know of me all there is to be known and all I can bear cope with being known. Something bothered him about that phrasing, as if Silver himself was unable to reach those memories, like they were hidden in the same kind of chest as the one he had buried on the island that night, when he had shown all of his own past's treasure to Silver. But the key from John's cache was as if thrown overboard. And who had it? Probably just Neptune, as Jack would have said. Maybe it was that he hadn't lied then, saying that he had no story to tell, because he himself was unable to read that story. Maybe Neptune alone knew it after all. Flint picks up the red, almost black in this silent dark, volume, and places it beside him on the bed. Eleanor had been kind to him and provided a bed, a luxury many other prisoners in that fort surely could only dream of. But what use was it to him when the swarm of bees in his head wouldn't quiet its buzzing, and when the silence and dark around him provided nothing that could drown it out? With Thomas, it had been all simple and definite. They met through work circumstances, became friends, then eventually lovers. James had been sparked alight with his ideas, and couldn't have imagined a scenario in which he'd leave their account for anything, or anyone else, and could no longer imagine himself without him. When he found out where his beloved was taken, when he stood in the Admiral's office, when he had to pack up and sail a world away, he barely was aware of himself anymore. His world was shrouded in darkness, thick and opaque, akin to the depths of the ocean, where black waters hide monstrous creatures from old sailors' tales. But there had been one beacon of light that always glimmered at the end of that dark, winding path into the unknown, an understanding in whose name he'd be doing all that he would do in the next decade. What if Silver's guess was right? What if, having sent someone out to investigate, they do find out that Thomas is truly there, alive but imprisoned, what if he goes there himself to free him, meet his beacon of light, and upon meeting him, would that mark the end of his path? Or just the same as in that harbor battle, something would still drag him back into the thick of the fight, the cause of freeing everyone from under the yoke, because now it seems that he can no longer imagine himself without this. What would their reunion mean if they knew that, in the grand scheme of things, they weren't free? and neither was everyone else. Would Thomas accept him like this? As what he'd become, covered in the blood of many more than he could keep count? Would he recognize him now? Still dedicated to the ordeal fully, but for different reasons now. Would he still love him? But all of this was merely guesswork and hypotheticals, about a tomorrow that could bring any number of things, Tomorrow, well, already today, since it was long past midnight. But something was telling Flint 
that day would bring a lot of loss, a lot of grief. They had a mountain to scale on this path, and it would be a challenge. But maybe, beyond that mountain, new horizons would open. Flint leaves all hope of falling asleep before dawn. And soon enough, on the dark horizons of New Providence Island, where the starless sky bled into the obscure depths of the sea, where on the ancient maps in the corners there lurked dragons, a beam of sunlight would rise. Today I have the unique pleasure to sit down with Lecky, a.k.a. Short John Silver. Lecky is a Ukrainian who has escaped his hometown of Odessa, now the focus of Russian attacks, and is currently living in London. I've been a fan of his black sales analysis on Twitter since I first joined the fandom a few years ago, and my admiration for his enormous brain has grown exponentially. We've got a lot to dissect today, so let's dive right in. Welcome, Lucky. It's so fabulous to have you on the podcast. I'm so glad that you could join us. Thank you. Thank you so much. I am really glad that I got to be on here. It's such an honor to have my fit be presented on the podcast. I never thought it would happen. Here we are. It's fantastic. Um, it's really nice leading into um, this type of fic from our previous episode, which was uh, an introspective uh, fic featuring Eleanor. And so transitioning into kind of the parallel um, that is set up as Flint, um, there really is a mirror in those two characters and, and seeing um, both of these stories from their different perspectives. Uh, it's it's a very interesting kind of back-to-back way to feature these stories. Um, so when did you first discover Black Sails? I think it was 2021. It might have been 20. No, I think it was 21. It was just, you know, the pandemic. Everybody was sitting at home uh, and I was looking for something new. And as a kid, I had read Treasure Island and I was like about 11 maybe. And I didn't really have too much of a recollection, but I had some, I know who Long John Silver was and I have heard the name Flint. What's funny is we have a snack brand like those, you know, croutons, uh, the beer snack called Flint. And so that name was on oh. my mind a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I have posted memes like, oh, eating him, you know, uh, but um Yes, and so I saw this this series promoted somewhere. I don't even remember where. And it was like in the description that it is a prequel to Treasure Island. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I clicked on it and I decided to check out. So from the first episode, you know, as we we're introduced to all these guys, oh, so that's John Silver. So this is his origin story. Look at him, this rascal of a man. Um, <laughs> and... And oh, so that's how they are imagining Flint. This is what they think he used to be like because we don't ever get to see him in the book, right? It's just like echoes of him. It's just his ghost haunting the skeleton island. Mm-hmm. It's just the voice that they can hear still in the woods. But we actually get to see him and his origin story as well, which is like 
yeah, it's fabulous that they decided to just go and do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think so many people uh, discovered black sales during the pandemic. I mean, uh, you know, forced to hunt through and find any form of entertainment that was out there uh, as shows were, you know, ceasing production and things like that. So a lot of the pre-existing stuff was starting to, you know, really resurface. And I think black sales benefited a lot um, from, from people going back and saying, Hey, what haven't I seen? <laughs> so right. what really, what really resonated with you with black sales? I mean, when I was first watching, it was prior to everything to the war and I had one thing appealed to me and now it's another thing but back then it was definitely this you know uncompromising queer wrath and the strife for liberation and for living the way that you are and not making any compromises establishment with society civilization and not letting people rewrite your story but also you know now at this point I'm looking back and I realize just like how much more it resonates on a different level now because we are faced with a force such as, as Flynn describes it right in the first episode, that it doesn't see us as adversaries, it doesn't see us as criminals, it sees us as monsters and it, need, it means to eradicate us. And I'm really feeling this right now. I think he mm -hmm. was right. And this is what empires do. And now as we stand, you know, in such a time resisting an empire i can really really feel it i think I on one hand i want to tell people to watch this you know tell my fellow ukrainians to watch this because it will be cathartic in a lot of ways but also mm -hmm. i understand that it might hit a bit too close to home to some of them right now yeah yeah i i totally see how that can be so strong in its parallel and especially with the idea of stories and who is controlling the narrative because oh, right yeah, now absolutely. yeah the way this is being framed and all of the rhetoric that is going back and forth it is so much we're starting to see these these people like uh, Elon Musk has done so much damage. Um, and I was has strangling with my bare hands. Distorted the narrative Twitter, so much. It. I mean it. And it really is. Like, we're talking about, you know, the monsters in the stories they tell their children. And that yeah. is really what they're doing. I mean, that when the dam was blown up, you know, I kept hearing on the radio, on the BBC, I kept hearing like, oh, who did it? I'm wondering who did it. There's like different options and versions about this. One side is blaming the other and the other side is like, no, no, it's unequivocal who did it actually. And you know, this is not new because they have been distorting and twisting the story about everyone that they've colonized for all of this time, for all of these centuries, every single uh, people every single culture you know that's been colonized by them they have made up stereotypes they have made up you know demonized versions they have made up all these notions that oh your culture doesn't really exist it's not real it's not a separate culture you don't even have your own language and try to destroy any trace like this is what they're doing right now with with the destruction of cultural uh, historical buildings and sites it's like yeah they're trying to erase it in real time and rewrite it and that is what really, really enrages. As Miranda says, I am enraged. So yeah. I am as well. 
Yeah. It's really eye-opening to see all of this shakedown on Twitter in terms of how the U.S.'s support of the war is splitting down party lines. And it's it's crazy. It's almost like, you know, they see anyone who is supporting Ukraine, who has a Ukrainian flag in their bio, and automatically it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to discount you because... It's the new look pronouns at the, bio. It well, really I'm, is. Hello. It Very really nice is. Both Ukrainian and half it's astonishing to me how quickly people's minds can be swayed toward Russia in terms of everything we know about the entire history of not just the country, but, you know, the current government. Like, it's just mind-boggling. I don't understand. I have people who are my relatives who live in the occupied Crimea, and some of them have been actually, you know, influenced by the propaganda because on the internet, they have the, the firewalling and on the TV, they get the propaganda instead of news, you know, and they have started to internalize these messages already. And I think I have lost contact with some of them. I don't even talk to them anymore because I just like don't know how to talk to them anymore. I don't know how to prove to them that this is not us bombing ourselves as they might so believe that this is not all fake that this is really happening and it is just happening all of these missiles all these ships they're f- starting from Crimea they're starting from there and heading our way that's yeah. just that's a tough one and many many people have these stories or have you know friends who have gotten under the propaganda even you know living in Donbass and living in other occupied territories or straight up people who have relatives in Russia who have that because that's their only environment and they have completely lost that relative because it's not you know Mm. they cannot continue being in contact man and what going back into thinking about black sales and in fandom interaction have you been deeply entrenched in fandoms before or is this the first one that really kind of sucked you in this is is definitely my first big sort of very involved fandom i didn't really used to do this i would just read something play something watch something and then like maybe go on tumblr for gifts you know and to read people's takes on it if if it was something that really you know got through to me in that way and shook me and I needed to to see some meta but I would like go and just read and be an observer for some reason specifically for black sales I decided to go and find other people on Twitter and just talk to them back and forth and it was interesting because at the same time a lot of people were also starting to watch it or they have recently finished it and there was such a lively fandom at the Mm -hmm. time that I really just sort of dove right in and it was there. It was happening. People were talking to each other. People were creating their theories, you know, sharing their thoughts and opinions, their metas. Yeah. And I got so many mutuals out of this. I got some really close friends out of this. And I'm just so extremely grateful for this one pirate show that brought so many people together. Some of them, you know, moved on already to other. Some of us have you know, changed our hyperfixations, but it's like the friendships do last. And I oh, love yeah. that. I love that it was specifically this thing that brought us together. 
Yeah. And I think, I think you and I probably got into the fandom around the same time. Cause I do, I do remember when I first got into it and when I was finishing it, I think is, is when I, I finally went onto Twitter cause I try very hard not to, to yeah, uh, spoil myself. I don't mm-hmm. like, I like it because, because when the creators sit down to storyboard and to to develop the show there's a very specific way they want to tell the story they want you to find things out in a specific way that flint and thomas reveal happens at a very specific point in the story because they want you they don't want you to go in feeling any kind of sympathy for Flint. They really do not. Oh, I really, they I didn't want, know what to make of him. Yeah, uh, they until, want yeah. you to hate him because first you have to. They have to put you in this perspective where all of a sudden you're like, oh God, I've been judging him the way everyone else is, and you immediately feel that and you recoil. So he was a, a monster spe- because yeah. Exactly. So you have to swallow their narrative first, and then you are allowed to understand the full breadth of the story. And so there's, with really great storytelling, that if you allow the writers to lead you in into a dark room and guide you along the way i think that is the best way to um encounter any kind of media um and so that's why i like really really avoided any kind of um twitter interaction until i was finished um and and i was worried going coming out of this like nobody's gonna talk to you about this it's been off the (laughs) air for years and to find such a lively discussion yeah. on twitter at the moment i was like okay and um, i was pleasantly and, surprised they're so very passionate still about it and so still ongoing there was the uh, quote bot of the script and every time the bot was giving like some famous line the famous monologues yes. everybody was just going crazy i love it so much <laughs> and i think um you were one of the earliest people that i interacted with on twitter and I gravitate towards certain a certain type of Twitter poster who people who will connect on an intellectual or a literary kind of a, a literary approach to talking about a piece of media because that's the way I I watch things as well. This was also one of my first fan bases. I was connected with Outlander. Um, Mm. first doing editing um, and fully entrenched in that fandom but it did it never at any point had its hooks in me like black sales did Um, it was something that I was involved in intellectually and theoretically but like it the story was not something that just overwhelmed my heart and black sales really really did that i think um, it's gonna have its grips in me uh for long years to come i might you know go on to other things i might develop new hyperfixations discover new things that i'm like super passionate about but i think this is the one i'm going to keep going back to 
because mm-hmm. you know whenever there's i'm loving this new revival that's happening right now and the fact that there's going to be like a rewatch and we will all just be experiencing it all over again every time somebody posts something or something black sales related happen or like luke arnold and the the signs you know one of my mutuals brought to him the meditations <gasps> book yes I, but, a day a month a year you just did that <laughs> for real <laughs> for a month for a year a month oh my god I, I, I was so normal and staying about it <laughs> oh yeah that was um that was a day on twitter when everybody lost their minds right I, I love it everybody just like flocked to it immediately everyone who was there before like we just woke up and ran right back yeah. That was fantastic. So looking at your works on AO3, um, it looks like this is your first foray into fanfic writing. Is that true? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I never ever, I literally never wrote a fanfiction before. I have done like little comics maybe that might have been, you know, like doujinshi, that type of thing, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't published. <laughs> it's very much like I hit a wall, uh, writer's block, never really finished it. But I've never written a fan fiction. I didn't think I would. I really didn't think I would do this because I, I didn't, I, I don't know. I wasn't thinking that this is my type of field because again, I am not good with like constructing a story out of the scenes that follow each other. Like, you know, there, there's a fabula, there is a plot. Um, but this is interesting because this is, yeah, introspection. And that's really what I can do is that I can get into a character's mind especially if it's a character so well written and and introspected in the show that we know the insides of his head and it was really like a field day you know it's a lot to work with there yeah psychologically uh there's so much at work absolutely absolutely so much to examine and just an endless amount of divergent ideas that can come from just even just his character Uh, but you can say that pretty much across the board with the characters in black sales yes they all are so multi-layered so multifaceted there's so much to them that you can just go on and on and on and on talking about them i recently have seen someone was it a meta about max and i would also you know i would talk about her on a different day like for a long time i wanted to write something with max at the focus actually but it only is just an idea for now so what was it about um black sales in particular that kind of coaxed you into um writing fan fiction yeah this is a hard one to answer because i I just i don't know I, i suppose because it gripped me that much and i was still very much in that headspace and i kept like thinking about these characters thinking about these dynamics day in and day out that i just sort of sometimes you just can't hold it inside you you just have to pour it out and i was doing Mm -hmm. metas you know i was writing like these long threads on twitter like the one about apocalypse now references in the whole charles baynard and (laughs) i I participated in the zine uh, freedom in the dark i wrote Mm -hmm. meta which see i am more of a non-fiction essay type but here i think it's kind of a middle ground between a fiction and non-fiction in a way that it's kind of like it is essay-ish but it's mm-hmm. still you know within the, uh, the the canon verse the yeah the universe of the show and it's from the character's perspective i might try something like this 
were they introspection to silver, but I don't know for sure. Yeah. Silver is, is a very interesting one to explore because so much of him is a blank slate. Right? I think, yeah, he's done that way in, on purpose. Like He says, yeah. I don't have a past. I don't have anything to cling to that defines me. And that is because when he enters the show, that's when the story starts. But when he steps onto the walrus, through him, we experience everything, like through his eyes. He is the blank slate for the audience, basically. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, he is the audience surrogate. And what's interesting is that an audience surrogate can so so very easily blend into the background and have and be really the least interesting character in a story but he transcends that so much while still maintaining yeah. that ambiguity it's an, an amazing feat of writing and acting it's just remarkable silver is is an incredible character definitely a lot of it too is luke arnold and how he he played it especially in the latter seasons. Oh gosh, yeah. It's just the power of that delivery. Yeah, they got yeah. the best cast. And they I love really how the did. cast is also obsessed, completely obsessed with the show. To this day, they're like, this is their favorite thing they've ever done. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I recall um, Luke Arnold saying in an interview, because someone asked him, did you know when you were doing it? Um, how good this was going to be. Did you have any idea? And he's like, oh yeah, we knew. We <laughs> all knew like this was something special. And just the interplay with uh, Luke Arnold and Toby Stevens there by the end of the run of the show, they were so in tune, like so many of their scenes, it's just little ticks of the eye. And yeah, you have like an entire, there's an entire dialogue that happens in their eyes and it is which is more needed uh, yeah amazing to the characters who have achieved that level of unity with their weird mind melding you know <laughs> their merging yeah. of souls just incredible just incredible like it is for for someone who because you can you can examine the show um from someone who approaches it uh as a writer and it is just astonishing. It's the most beautiful writing that I have seen in a television show, show hands down, bar none. Um, but you can also approach it just from an acting perspective. It's a masterclass. It is absolutely a masterclass in terms of what we're given is dialogue that we normally see on stage. And then acting that is so specifically for the camera. And what we're able to, to get is like this perfect meld of uh, the complexity of the dialogue and these minute, tiny expressions of these masterful actors. It's astonishing. Yeah, because the screen acting school and the stage acting school are very different because on very stage different. you have to be extremely expressive. And on screen, you have to be subtle. Smaller. So the camera picks mm -hmm. up the small stuff. But the kind of dialogue you get in the show is definitely more of a theater uh, stage, you know, play dialogue, which you don't really see much of it on the TV and yeah. or movie screen. Yeah. The only thing, you know, you know it's just Shakespearean um, film adaptations. You would see that kind of dialogue. But but 
Typically, what you see with a lot of those adaptations as well is there is a fair amount of theatricality that, you know, still clings to the vestiges of these actors. Uh, But in Black Sails, it is completely stripped of that. And it's still these incredible performances, uh, giving very, very cinematic performances with this very stagey dialogue. It's incredible. I love it. I love it. Okay, moving on. (laughs) So in your fic, this holds the distinction of being the very first one that I have been sitting through with my script and um, reading through as a practice. Now, I'd, I'd already read it before, but just the first time reading it out loud, it made me cry. Oh my God, for real? It, for real. My, <laughs> my husband walked in and he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm sorry, this is just a lot right now. <laughs> I, I, am, I am so honored. Just, it's, so it, is, it is a beautiful, one of the, th- it's so fully thick with prose and um that in particular really moved me like I love prose and I don't get me wrong I love dialogue and I I I love performing dialogue and but the atmospheric kind of introspective dark night of the soul which literally this is it is a dark night of the soul that kind of thing speaks to me so deeply and so how did that affect you emotionally when you were writing it oh yeah I think by the end of this, I was like very much obsessed at the time with analyzing the light and darkness and how it's used in the show because that's one of the things that Flint does talk about in his famous final monologue you know he talks about how it's defined that they will define everything by their light, the light that what they think is and what they say is the light and what they say is the darkness because in the darkness there'll be dragons, but in the dark there can be freedom, there can be you know discovery and possibility. And I was thinking about a lot of the use of lighting the use of shadow and light specifically with him where he's present in the mise-en-scene but also just in general in the entire show how much it's very particular how it's thought through for instance when you know when the scene in season two episode five happens the the reveal the kiss it's like yes they're shrouded in the darkness but it's like this one beam of light that sort of brings them out of it you know there's freedom in the dark when someone has eliminated it and also the parallel that I thought about and some people also brought up is when Max approaches Anne at the beginning of season two and she's telling her that you know perhaps it would do well to bring it into the light Mm -hmm. and that's when their first kiss happens and it brings into the light a lot of things that were shrouded in the darkness within Anne. So it's like, yeah, those parallels are so immense and so masterful. I am just so normal about them. And then, of (laughs) course, with Flint and Silver, with their whole, with with their, you know, there's not being daylight between them. And then where there is daylight between them, that's when they're drawn apart. And that's also an interesting thing to observe as the, you know, with the staging, with the mise-en-scene in the show on screen as the fourth season progresses. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said there. So I tried to use this terminology a lot 
within the fig, as you may have noticed that it was because mm-hmm. he was in that space, the, the dark night of the soul and the flickering beginning lights of the dawn and what tomorrow would bring. I mean, I think, yeah, I think it was very, did touch me very deeply as well as I was writing it. It is, yeah. There's a, uh, right there's now, a lot of... I'm, look, I'm reading back through some of it. Uh, <laughs> anywhere he looked in Flynn's past, there was always a void, a dark abyss left behind. And uh, yeah. So basically, I was thinking as he is there, it's kind of a little bit of a repeat, an echo of season three being in the belly of the beast. Not literally, but you know, there was this yeah. huge, huge throwback. And he does talk about it in uh, the next episode after that, after the shark episode, as they call it, that they were in the belly of the beast. And right now he is also figuratively in a similar situation in that fort you know, in a very, very liminal stage where it, it's, yeah, he is uncertain what is going to come if Silver had just planted an idea in his mind and he's turning it over. What could tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, what could it bring? And so I think it was, it was a time for him to mull it over and to, to have his ponderings about the nature of things about the nature of his relationship with Thomas, how it had been, how it could become, if they should meet again, what would it become? And of course, his relationship with Silver as well, and the nature of that, how it has, what it has become already. Yeah. One of the things that you do really well is showing that hesitation in Flint, even allowing his thoughts to go in a certain direction. Uh, where he will start going and then, no, he couldn't, and then pull back. And we all have these mental checks and balances in our head where there's a fear of tipping over some precipice that we cannot, if we introduce a thought, we cannot pull back from that edge, that it is fully plummeting into this idea that if I allow this thought to take purchase i will never shake it off it will haunt me or even if it is something that we're hoping for or wishing for um i don't even i i can't even picture it i don't want to i don't want to even go there because i don't want to be crushed by the disappointment of not having that and there's so much of that in this story where you hear his hesitation in his own thoughts. And um, that is one of the things that that really touched me as I was reading this. One of the things that Toby said in an interview when he was uh, asked about the particular dynamic between Flint and Silver is he said, even if Flint did develop feelings of love beyond friendship for Silver, he would be absolutely terrified to even admit that to himself um, because of his history of loss, um, because of the guilt that he feels um, for those who he loves, who are, are lost along the path of, you know, whatever endeavor he is engaged in. You look back at when Thomas is taken, it wasn't in James's path that Thomas was yanked away. 
Thomas was yanked away out of his own path because that was that was Thomas's impetus. It was his uh, dream. It was his goal, which is you know what instigated Alfred Hamilton going after them in the first place. But he still, even looking back, he still brings that on himself. He brings Miranda on himself. Of course, he he takes on the ownership of Gates. Yes. Well, that was his doing. Yes, exactly. He, especially after Silver had pointed it out to him in their conversation at the end of season three, that mm-hmm. the succession, this line of succession that happens here, that, well, in a way, Silver has already insinuated himself as being the successor to all of these people. And he had pointed out the pattern, but I think this is also something that Finn had thought about before that, that he had thought about how people who, well, he has felt that guilt already and it sort of hit a nerve that was already hurting, you know? Yeah. And yeah, this this whole succession thing, I, I'm particularly interested in it because was pointed to out to me by my friend Deck, who also was the same person who pointed out that the book he was reading was Pilgrim's Progress and not mm-hmm. uh, Meditations. But also Deck has talked about the ritual substitution. Um, according to rich, uh, the Violence and the Sacred book by René Girard, and I have read it. So basically a lot of what is going on with them too is the ritual substitution because it's set up throughout season three and especially when Silver starts going on about how, well, I might actually be the end of you. I uh, I already possess both the being liked and being feared, which makes me more powerful than you are. And he also at the same time talks about how he dreads it, how he does not want that to happen and how he has trepidations because of it. And then in the beginning scene of season four, we have them sitting in the cabin and Flint quotes, he quotes a Bible passage that isn't really about that, but you can kind of hear the echoes of it there as well, where, you know, the old shall serve the young and be Mm. basically replaced and substituted by it. And the entirety of season four is that passing on of the crown, especially it culminates in episode eight, where they sit and Flint says it outright that he doesn't want the crown anymore, that it's you and Madi, it's you and her that are fit to rule uh, you know the world in balance right now god yeah. that one has been such grip when he says you are the best of us i was just yeah I, oh. uh, my heart yeah, i cannot i don't know how i don't care how many times i have watched that scene and i've i've seen it a fair few it affects me the same every single time it, it's both the overall story it's the writing and the way that it's delivered is just just overwhelmingly heartbreaking because you can you understand that it's an equal part of him just being so so tired and also genuinely saying seeing himself as this beast that has to be taken out of the equation for peace to come forward because he does not have peace in him anymore that that has yeah, been that yanked that has been so much stolen from him he cannot be that person anymore and he has to take himself out of the story and it is so sad because at that point like you were so fully involved and i know that people approach the story you know attaching to different characters i am ride or die flint and i yeah from from the beginning he was such an interesting character 
one of the things that I love about the the conversation that he has with Silver in episode 310 is that is why does my favorite why does Silver ask him in that way? Why does he say who in whose name is this war being fought? There's that is so an much there there's so much knowledge behind that question yes. of listen I see you and I think I understand you. Please tell me, tell me if I'm right. And I think, I think he understood at that point. I think he understood and he, he needed context for this idea that he had in his mind about uh, Flynn's motivations and just what type of person he was. And that's why I think he goes right out of that new knowledge that he's been given right into listen i know that i am the closest person in the world to you and i know that i am in this succession of people that have been lost along your path and he said i know that i am next in the succession of people extremely dear to you next in the succession of people that you love basically is what he's saying and people he who knew. love you, he is also saying that. Yes. And he didn't he even probably realize what it was that he said. Yeah. He knew before he asked the question, he knew that there was something beneath everything. And that just, that, that for me makes that scene so much more resonant because you see Silver's understanding and you see his quiet acceptance of this and he isn't shocked. Yeah. There is no, oh, there's no recoil or, oh, well, that's, this was not new information. And it basically corroborated the theory he'd already had in his brain. Yeah, it was, it was like, okay, this checks out. And so it's just, there, they were already from, I think you can start from, you know, when they take the warship they're already starting to click so mentally in tune with each other that it was just a natural, just being in his vicinity for that long. Of course, he's going to pick up on it. And it's amazing how little Silver lets on about himself to other people, but he is extremely perceptive about others himself. He's like very tuned into them. He's just a sponge. He's just soaking up. Yep. Soaking everything up. All of these little details, like when Max uh, drops the information about the plantation, just all yeah, of these he little details. He just... thinks about the next Boom. thing. Yeah. What if Thomas, what if he was alive? What if I could bring him back? What, 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 it just takes maybe two hours to mull it over in his brain. And maybe in those two hours, I have a theory that that was the time he actually even sent a man out to yeah. Georgia to check out if, if, if Thomas is really there. And in that time, he comes to Flynn and he's like, listen, what if? Here is a hypothetical. Because that was the first thing he thought of when he just heard of a possibility of somebody sending, you know, the wealthy families sending a relative that is inconvenient for them. His brain made that connection so quickly because he was thinking about Flint. He does think about him a lot and he cares about him a lot. And I think that was part of what, you know, and, and because he was driven by, okay, I don't want to lose anyone to this war. And we already know that at that point, they have had the conversation 
mm-hmm. about whether or not this could be enough. And he didn't get a response from Flint then. And he didn't get a response from Mahdi either, whether he would be enough. And I think he understood both of those as a no. And he is like, okay, they are too entrenched in this and I have to find a way to get them out of this entrenchment or I will lose them. And he's already also somebody who has lost people before. We know there is this feel about him that he cannot cannot bear to lose somebody who is dear to him. And that is his motivation doing everything he's done. Yeah, one of the things I talked to um, because of everybody's schedules, I've had to um, record some stuff out of sequence of when it's going to actually air on the podcast. So um, we're going to be featuring Cinnamon. And, Cinnamon. Oh, yes, the, the one that you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I talked to Tora last week. And one of the things that we talked about um, that, that she brought up that was so spot on is that flint and and silver represent fight versus flight and that flint is always fighting fighting hands on just going with a knife silver is always running so and even with that clash at the end it is still a clash of fight versus flight except flint is fighting for silver and silver is running from the very possibility of losing Mahdi or flint yep it's just yeah and so there is that connection and so i kind of i can't understand the perspective of people who view silver simply as kind of the villain of the tale i don't this think is setting that... him up as a future you know as he is appearing as a villain in treasure island but we should understand that this is one of the points the show makes that yes you will be distorted by the narrative you will be turned into a monster by it that is going to happen and uh, a tale is true a tale isn't true you know as as jack says it's not it doesn't even matter at the end it's the stories that will survive and we already know because within that within that speech we already see the book that the governor wrote being read by Mrs. Hudson to her children and the big, you know, candlelight right in the front. Their light, their reasons, their judgment, yeah. and they're telling their children's stories about monsters already yeah. in real time. And it's interesting because, you know, if you look at it from a meta standpoint, you know, how much of Treasure Island is the stories they tell their children how exactly. much of treasure treasure island if you look at um the the two side by side and black sails being the source material for treasure island instead of the other way around because that's the only way that you can really look at it knowing the the themes of black sails that that treasure island is a product of black sales and not the other way around that's the only way that it works it's the only way it holds up so taking treasure island kind of this this canonic view is a little bit restrictive i think because you know there's all kinds of things that can be twisted about the story and it's just it's so interesting it's so interesting. What I would love is for the Black Sails creators to do Treasure Island, but viewing, but through that uh, filter of 
the real story is based on the events of Black Sails, and maybe this is the true Treasure Island. I, I just, yeah. I think that would be really, really interesting. It's so, the prequel that is completely recontextualizing everything. Yes. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah. So there's a really powerful connection that Flint has with the idea of belonging to a place, um, to belonging to a home. And um, much of what transpires can equally be derived from his loss of that home. And, uh, you know, he says, uh, you know, and society kind of ripping him away from it. He says to Vane when he's trying to coerce him over to the so- that side. Uh, with oh, the whole, I love that conversation so much. The whole Blackbeard. Yeah, yeah so... when he's taught, when he, yeah, when he's trying to, to convince him to come over and betray Teach. And he says, they took my home. My home. And the question he asks at the end is, who are you? And where is your home, essentially? Yeah, exactly. Because home is as much a place as it is people. So, you know, your home moves with you, with the people that you love and the people that you surround yourself with. You take your home with you, essentially. So when Flint is saying they took my home, they not only took England, they not only took Nassau, they took Miranda. And that was, she was She was the only person who remained to him as a home. The, yeah. That place, the house itself and her being alive, that was what was left of home, of the thing that he had. And that is why I think at the end, if what we hear from Silver's tale, what we see on screen from this tale, if we believe it to be true, that even it was a plantation, even if we if we see him going right back under the yoke, you know, putting down the swords and taking up shovels again, but he was there with Thomas and that's why it's home. Because exactly. he is with the one who is his home now. So how much of that parallel, how deeply does that resonate for you? Because you are, in essence, the same, where you have been displaced from your home. And literally, society, a a group of people, a culture, has been trying to systematically rob you and those you love of that home. How has that affected your connection to the show? Oh, yeah, greatly, greatly. I mean, even especially right now in, in the in light of the latest, like I am watching my home being right before my eyes. And I've been to many, many places. You know, I've been I've visited multiple countries. I have visited uh, European capitals and non-capitals. And what I can say is, you know, as they say, East or West home is best. And it's not just because I love my city as I do, but also because my family rests there and um, I I am feeling very much, you know, roots torn out of the ground. And I feel that sort of loss of connection. But at the same time, I think on my path, I was never truly alone because, well, partly because of the friends that I, I met through this fandom mm-hmm. who have supported me every step of the way, who have provided me the support that is, you know, emotional to, to whom I can always go and whom I can always talk to. So, yeah, I can find and build a new home here. Of course, I will eventually very much want to go back because I think unlike with Flint, it still remains home to me. It It's just 
yeah, we are faced with with a civilization that seeks to to eradicate us, as he said. And I really resonate with him. I resonate with Mari saying that she would know, oh, she would never accept any pardon. That you know, the war that she's fighting will not be bargained away for 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 a fight. That it's greater, that it's bigger than everyone. Um, and of course, their conversation in season four, episode three, when Flynn says an empire survives because we believe it. The survival to be inevitable, but it isn't inevitable. And I, I, I would carve that onto my eyelids. I don't know. I like if I could own a single scene from a TV show, like that would be it. Uh-huh. And when she turns around and quotes Don Quixote at him, I, it was just such an amazing, such an amazing moment. Oh yeah, definitely. And her and and Flint's reaction to that. This he's in realization, awe. The realization of who she is. That, yeah. Ah, this is this is someone who is a kindred spirit. This is someone who absolutely is just the just connection like me. that is built between them in that time. When Silver is away, they bond both over the loss of him, right? Because both of them miss him, and they are much, you know, willing to both, you know, they they wish to find him. They hope that he is alive, but they're also at the same time preparing to grieve. And then in that meantime, they also find a connection between them beyond that shared person who hit the, who they love and that they are indeed kindred spirits. And I just, I love their dynamic. Like this is my favorite platonic dynamic probably in the whole show. Oh yeah, definitely. I just, yeah, I love them so much. One of the things that I think was kind of keeping them at odds before Silver is presumed dead is that they were both being they were both approaching the relationship as being so protective of silver and so they they were they each viewed the other as a threat and and so they had that kind of buffer where they weren't actually communicating with each other they were communicating about silver and so when you remove him out of the equation, they're finally able to, you know, actually come together and address each other without that buffer in the middle. And it's just... And yeah, rediscover how similar actually they are. Exactly. How, how close they are in terms of spirit. I love that. And uh, so what is your favorite line or passage that that you've written, whether it's from um, from this story or something that something else that you've written? Yeah, well, I, I was kind of going back, reading it back, and I think it's it's really it's it's really tough. But I think the part where, as you've talked about this, where he catches himself on a thought and he kind of doubts it, so and once again he catches himself on a thought and a choice of word those he loves is that so what was that the reason why he had plunged himself into the water leaving behind his men and the realization that there wasn't a way to explain it to them if he had left them to continue the fight without him only that reminder had stopped him then that is my favorite as well oh. that is that <laughs> literally when you started reading that i'm like oh yes because that that yes that was the point that I started to tear up I was like because because when you when you hear that you can immediately picture that scene where literally he does he starts to take off his coat he is about to go over the edge yeah and then he pulls himself back like I can't do this 
I can't. Yeah, because what, what, how, what, how am I going to explain? What am I going to say to them? I'm abandoning my whole crew. What's left of it, you know, to go dive after one person. And Marty Everbig was kind of more of a public relationship, you know, Marty and Silver. Mm-hmm. And people had to hold her back physically, like several people at the same yeah. time so that she doesn't plunge in. But Finn, like he has a responsibility. He has the crown still and he has to carry it. And yeah. He has to put them into battle and he cannot abandon that responsibility right now, even though he so wanted to. And it's such a telling moment because, because throughout the course of the show, many people have been lost in battle, lost over the side, that you have never, ever seen him react that way before. Yep. He, will he, didn't not have, he was treating no. his crew as disposable, basically, at exactly. the beginning. And exactly. Everyone is and he goes from that to we leave no man behind by the end. Like, yeah. I just. Yeah. I love he, here. Silver. Yeah. Silver becomes so precious to him. Absolutely. It's, there's no Immensely. other way. There's no other way to. Because at a certain point, if you're looking at uh, Flint viewing Silver merely as a tool, a means to an end, his usefulness stops when he loses his leg. I mean, I was thinking about that so much in season three, episode three, the shark episode, is when, you know, everybody is starving, parched, and he des- designates these rations to, okay, so we're going from the strongest men to the weakest, basically, and the ones who are really, really instrumental to ha- hailing this ship to, you know, wherever it needs, whenever we see anywhere close to the ground. And then he gives Silver the full same amount exactly. as he dealt. And Silver thought, I think he was against it because he thought for a second, because of his, like, we've seen it in the first episode, the second with Muldoon, right? Talking to him about how he feels useless. He feels like Mm -hmm. he's no longer useful on this ship. And it's like, no, my brother in Christ, you would never be discarded by Flint at this point. You're so, so much and so far deep in this entrenchment. He would never do that. He is going to give you the last piece of his bread and never like yeah he thought that he was going to be on the shit list basically but that would never happen at that point because it's just it was just too far and they were just too involved and he was just too precious to him yeah you look at the the progression so when silver comes to in in the um captain's quarters on the oh god i love that scene so much the expression on flint's face is so gentle he's so so fond you don't see him have that expression outside of any interaction in the entire show unless it is miranda or thomas there's nothing even approaching that with gates it is silver miranda thomas those are those secret moments those are those quiet smiles those gentle the crinkling of the eyes just where he glows he glows onto silver he already has such a deep affection for him and when silver tells him about the treasure and makes up the story i fully believe that flint knows he's lying about it yes he knew everything right away he could have yeah he very well could have immediately killed him he can't do that but he also cuts himself off completely because he's like i am emotionally 
compromised by this man already. And I can't allow myself to go there. So when he finally tells him on the little dinghy, when he finally tells him the truth, that he's, it's not that he is relieved that, ah, silver stole from me. I knew that. I just wanted you, I wanted honesty between us. It's because Silver was honest with him, finally. It's because he was 100, being 100% with him. And that's what why Flynn was so taken aback by it. Like, okay, we have no secrets between us now. And I think that's that situation was what brought on his decision to finally open up about his past and tell him about the demons, you know, and where they come from. Yeah. It's because at that point, he thought, okay, there are no secrets between us now. Yeah. And yeah, because... because- Silver telling him that was such an act of trust in terms of you can kill me right now. I am putting myself entirely at your mercy and making myself incredibly vulnerable to you because I believe that that this relationship is something that deserves to be repaired and um, that we cannot go forward when there is any kind of an obstruction between us. And um yeah, so very much the the um, reestablishment of that trust is what um, just springboards them forward. So uh, uh, you talked about your your main focus of writing being uh, almost nonfiction or essay type exploration. So what is your process for that like? Honestly, the process for this one was just stream of consciousness Mm. i just wrote the way i would write a a twitter thread about some meta take of mine about like because i've been thinking about it and it was like living rent free in my head so much and i just have to put it to paper it was mostly stream of consciousness and then i would edit and i would add things and subtract things and i would translate it and when i worked obviously i've um gone to seek uh, and bonnie's help ghost of Anne bonnie thank you very much my English teacher friend who just uh, <laughs> amazingly uh, beta read everything. And I just asked them like, oh, okay, what verb should I use here? Do you know like any, do you know any good synonyms to this word? Or like, does this sound natural, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I created, yes, I think I created the first version in Ukrainian and then went from there. And I think I, I also did that because I, I saw that there weren't enough Ukrainian fix on AO3 and I really wanted to fix that. Mm-hmm. And especially that there weren't any in the Black Sales fandom. And when I started getting comments on my fic, that people who were also fellow Ukrainians and fans of Black Sales who hadn't seen anything like that, they were just so um, thrilled to see this because like, oh my God, like, you know, I've, uh, tapped into this audience that I knew existed and it, it had to exist because I am here so somebody uh, like me out there is, t- is bound to exist and I know I already have a mutual um, on Twitter who's also a Ukrainian Black Sales fan and like yeah this is awesome cool, by the way oh good so what is your background in English because in talking to you I don't it's astonishing because I, I've I've spoken with Tora as well, who is Polish, and oh yeah, so oh, both she, of you. I talked to her in Polish then. Oh, you speak Polish? That's incredible. Bit. I had it in school. Strangely, even though we're not in the West, but we had like Polish in my school, which really helped me 
when I moved, you know, like I crossed the border and first stop was Poland. So like I could get around a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, just on the level of going to the supermarket, buying something like ordering coffee. I can do that. So that really helped. I'm glad that I, yeah, weirdly I had, had like such a foreign language focused school. We barely even, we barely even learned anything else. We had very weak chemistry. Physics was only interesting because our physicist teacher was interesting. Like he was a walking meme and everybody loved him. Um, mathematics wasn't really taught very well. I am um, stereotypical. I'm gay. I don't do math, but yeah, uh, <laughs> English. We had seven hours at some point. I remember seven hours of English a week. That's like at least one every day. And on two days, we had two classes of English. Yeah. So that's why. That's my background. Yeah, because because the your fluency level is astonishing. It really is. And everybody tells me that. I and I quote, your English is so good, end quote. I hear that about five times a week. It really is. I might be exaggerating a little bit, but every British person that I know has said that to me. It very much is. Not only are you, do I hear you familiar with idiomatic speech patterns and things like that? It's just astonishing. And it was the same thing with Torah, talking to Torah, where with with native English speakers, there's a whole lot more editing that I have to do with uh, interviews to pull out uh, filler words like, like, um, you know, and I, I include myself That's in that. That's because I've been browbeat into not having filler words in my speech, and I try to not have them. Ah, so we like <laughs> we've yeah, always so... been told, don't do that, don't say these words, work around them, say other things, don't just go like, like. Well, you know, I still do that a little bit, but I understand it's not that bad, generally speaking that it's kind of like a restrictive norm, but I also, yeah, I try not to do it. There are a lot of times where my brain would be, you know, blanking a little bit and I will just sit there, you know, just sit there. Yeah. yeah and that is a lot easier to edit around than trying to pull like out of the middle of a sentence. <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah, it's awesome because what I'm, you know, even just talking to you now, I'm like, oh, this is going to be so easy to edit. <laughs> and it's the same thing, same thing with Torah. Like I'm, I am almost done editing uh, that discussion and I breezed through it. I was just like, oh, amazing, amazing. So yes, just as a, as a native English speaker, your English is astonishingly good. Really is. Uh, so I know you worked with uh, Ghost of Ambani in terms yeah. of uh, both uh, beta and the um, English translation. So what was that process like? Yeah, I basically would hit them up and be like, hey, how do I say this passage? So basically I would just send a screenshot of my passage and she would be like, okay, so yeah, this is good. This is good. And this is where you would, you'd probably be better off saying this instead and like wording it like that and putting these words in that order. And I was also asking for, for like, oh yeah, do you know synonyms for this? Do you know mm -hmm. synonyms? For because also another thing that I have internalized throughout my like academic path is, especially with writing, is that I've been taught to not repeat myself, like to not 
use the same word many, many times in the sentence. So I was um, really asking yeah. for these. Do you know synonyms for this? Do you know how I could say this otherwise so that I don't repeat too much? It basically was just like that. It was me sending snippets. Well, at some point, the whole Google Doc just read it over. It was very similar to working on the on the zine piece and doing that with uh, the mod who was working, mm-hmm. you know, with with writing. I I have hours and hours and hours of conversation uh, with Ghost of Anne Bonnie. Um, we started talking when I was still living in Japan. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, because um, they had actually lived in Japan for 10 years. So I had about half that time. I was there for five years. Um, but when I was asking about uh, this particular fic and they were like, listen, I, I, I took a look at some passages, but um, that was all him, like all of that structure, all of that prose. And um, yeah, so the just the flow of that prose and everything, just so astonishing. Honestly, this is my first. Just, <laughs> it's just beautiful. And just the way, hold on. <laughs> this is my, this is my fic folder. Oh my God. Hold on. But even just the end, um, where the starless sky bled into the obscure depths of the sea, where on the ancient maps in the corners there lurked dragons, the beam of yeah. sunlight would rise. I'm proud of that one. I'm proud of that oh, one. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Very nice. What are your favorite tropes? This is interesting. There was a thing going on on Twitter lately where people were sharing their trope tier lists. I saw that. Yeah. And I don't really, I don't go by tropes usually. Well, okay. If something is, let's say, I like a slow burn, definitely. I've read fics that have like 30 chapters, you know, more than 30 chapters. Um, I like some hurt comfort. Well, it's good old, you know. I like something that is set in the canon universe, but kind of subverts it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a fix it in a way or like a different ending. And I like post canon. Actually, I've had an idea for a, pa- for a post canon. I don't know about whether or not I will write it. It's not a fact, but I do have, I haven't, I, I, I just, yeah, I it just love me some post-canon Black Tales, you know, I've read several of them, including Merchant Ships Have, what was it? What was the name? Merchant Ships Have, my, I, uh, I don't remember the full, the full name of the thing, but it's like, you know, one of those where they meet again after years and years. And they hash mm-hmm. out the things that needs to be hashed out. And it just so beautifully explores that. And I like myself some exploration. And I also like a modern AU if it's set in a historical period or uh, if if it's one historical period to be set in another, for instance. Yeah. And see how that plays out. My go-tos. So uh, do you have a background in creative writing? Not so much, actually. A creative, I wouldn't say, like, I've done essays and I've done like published more nonfiction stuff but I don't I wouldn't say I do have a creative writing background I'm not like a linguist you know mm-hmm. I'm from I've studied mostly philosophy culture history and we did we did 
one semester of script writing and I didn't even finish my assignment to write a script because I had no ideas. I really, I didn't have an idea of what to, to write my script about. And look at me now, I am a published creative writer in a way. <laughs> so are you working on anything right now? I wouldn't call it working on it, but I have something for now that is like an idea, a setting in my head. It's more like a sketch, you know, like a sketch of a scene. And I would probably need to build out from that scene so it is a post canon it is it starts i just had it, it just came to me one night i suppose it starts when silver in a pub is giving his talk in is telling people stories about how he knew flint and you know flint his own self was feared of me feared he wasn't proud and a certain mm -hmm. someone overhears it and challenges him on it and is like, oh, are you saying he was proud of you? And it turns out that that somebody was Thomas Hamilton. And that is how they <sighs> run into each other. And yeah, that's it, basically. And I have to kind of bring it to a point where they actually get to talk to each other and, you know, figure, yes, they're talking about the same man, but also one of them only knows him as the man that he knew from Nassau. As Flint and the other only knew at first James, you know, and then hadn't known anything about him since their separation. So, like, I don't know how to get them there and how to Dad. bring Silver back to meet Flint again and for all the three of them to hash it out. I don't really know how to execute that, but that is the idea, that is the setup. Oh, that would be so good. Yeah, I, I do no, hope I just that can't that... write plots. Unfortunately. <laughs> I do hope that, that you're able to see that to fruition because I would absolutely love to read it. Oh. Um, one day, perhaps. <laughs> are you reading anything right now? Thick uh, wise, well, I've gotten into a new fandom and quite still strongly in it, uh, the game Disco Elysium. And I am currently reading something about that. But it's also, it gets a little bit close to home as well, because a couple of the fics, well, I don't know, like this is a little spoilery about the setting of the game, but basically uh, they have, uh, they have like the coalition forces, which is like the coalition of other governments. And they have like warships in the air above the city of Revachol and like the threat of bombings and, you know, nuclear warfare. And I think, some of it is a bit too much for me to read right now. So, and as of literature, I am I have recently acquired a collection of Walt Whitman. Uh, so I am immersing myself in poetry. I really, really love, I've heard a couple of poems from Leaves of Grass years ago. It was somebody who did a reading of them and put it on YouTube. And I was just like immediately entranced. So I'm glad that I got my hands on it complete collection of his work now and I could just sit and read there's so many good ones in a song of myself that yeah mm. it's good stuff very very nice um so what are your top five favorite hmm. fix I haven't been able to never be down to five I'm sorry um, okay whatever you want to expand it to so, okay I'm gonna get out of the way the ones that everybody says uh, orange verse of yes. course that's yeah comfort fake honestly for me. it really is butterscotch 
that whole series amazing love Mm -hmm. it so much then okay so there's a series that focuses on what this one a headcanon that is quite common in the fandom that silver is jewish and i share that headcanon too Mm -hmm. and there's a whole series called tether by steel three i believe the author is and it's like these several fics that take part and they focus on silver jewish silver and he meets like other people this jewish girl who's an oc named rebecca and she's so precious i just i love a well-written oc um Mm -hmm. honestly just like and everybody meets by the end of it all kind of everybody i suppose it's not one where miranda is alive of course i love me think where miranda is alive but this one is the one where thomas and, and james are and they eventually also oh Okay, another one that is very, very interesting. It puts a spin on a canon universe. I think it's called I Dance With Your Ghost. It's from, okay, so when Max talks about sending the, the Oglethorpe plantation where people are sending off, they're inconvenienced them. Um, and she's like, I would have sent you there, right? To Silver. Mm-hmm. So this is an AU where she actually Jeez. sends Silver away and he is there and he meets Thomas Hamilton. And he doesn't read know that who one. it is. And yeah, and eventually they do eventually find out because they start, they keep talking about the man that they don't know is the same man. And um, yeah, they eventually realize, oh my God, you are Thomas Hamilton. And yeah, that one is really uh, good. I, <laughs> I read that one as well. I love that. Um, and I think Jay, in terms of the, the Tether series, uh, Jay referenced the Tether se- series as oh well. Oh my God, taste. Yes. <laughs> also, this is from my uh, good friend Mary, but uh, the one also based on a hard canon that I share personally with Trans Silver, and it's called Many Ways to Be John Silver, and it's about Silver and Madi, and I just, I love them so much. They're so precious, and I'm just so honored, and she wrote that with me in mind, so I'm oh. like completely just uh, so touched by that. And there's... Okay, so another one by a friend as well. Um, you know, you probably already have had it mentioned and you will have it, I believe, as a, a series, right? The biopic of Charles Vane, as I call it. Yes. The name. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I just, we've discussed it so much. And just like I ran by Anne so many of the things, you know, and she ran it by me as well uh, when writing that fic just kind of exchanging with each other okay what do you think about this so i don't know if it's really honest to be nice like if it's not cheating but um yeah because <laughs> i also kind of a little bit had a hand in it but i really i i, I enjoyed that and i love that it's just going to be this big thing focused on origins of charles another thing that i really loved was from, so this okay so this is from thomas hamilton's perspective and it's him being from the time that he's sent away from Bedlam on a ship to Georgia, his entire time on the plantation, and then to the day that things come back, comes back, and he meets them, uh, you know, they meet each other again. It's called the Acon- the unaccommodated man, and is yeah, it's basically just his perspective of being in that plantation for all of these ten years, and it's just so masterfully written. I love it. Oh, wow. I will have to look that one up because there's, there really isn't enough focus on Thomas in terms of the fanfic universe. 
And yeah, there, but there's so much because because we are lacking so much of his story. There is so much of a uh, a void to fill um, yep. that it really is kind of rich meat for for exploration. And he's an interesting one too because he starts off like yeah, he's a visionary, but he's also very sheltered and he doesn't have the full perspective on the things that he wants to bring, like the the change he wants to bring about. But I think in his time there in his time, you know, outside, being in captivity, kind of, he changes, most likely he changes his perspective. I had kind of that he'd become an abolitionist while he was there. So, yeah. Yeah, I, because when you look at Thomas's plans for Nassau going back to 1705, when he's actually formulating these plans and discussing them with James, again, all of it is being approached from a civilization perspective going yep. in as colonizers from an English and exactly. And so looking at long-term, the characters of Thomas and James, so much of James gravitating towards Thomas is just the, the aura of the man and the integrity of him. But you understand that James was fully not in support of of Thomas's yeah. vision for NASA. Naive that plan was basically exactly. He understood. Yeah, he understood that this was not something that could work long term um, because he had been there and he had seen the corruption. He had seen, you know, the the boy's throat being slit in the streets. Um, he understood the, the naivete of those plans, but he was swayed because of his love for Thomas. He was going to support Thomas and he was going to support those plans because he loved him so deeply. Long term, had they gone forward, the, the the inevitable clash that would have happened between these two very polar opposite ideologies uh would have driven them apart but because of everything that happened in the interim because of all of this time that thomas spent understanding the full weight of what civilization did to him what it did to cause the loss of james and miranda um it would have brought him a certain way towards James's perspective and everything that James has been through um, would have brought him a little bit closer in terms of uh, Thomas. And I think them growing in these directions individually uh, would have created a bit more of an even ground Um, because, you know, of course, Thomas is also coming at it from um, he is miles miles uh higher than james in rank in terms of him being a lord that is here and so bringing them down to um you know to an even footing also is just very interesting to see um where we where they would go forward and thomas's journey of getting there it that yeah so I, I'd be really interested yeah. to to read more um, fics that are from Thomas's perspective, and it's, it, especially during that interim of mm-hmm. what was happening yep. during that whole story. And I think, yeah, I've touched upon it in the fic in what Flint is talking about as he is there in the fort um, and he is thinking about what would it be when they would meet again because he has changed so much and he has 
walked away from their original plan. And I've uh, rewatched season three, episode four recently, where he is talking about this out loud, saying to Silver that I don't know if I'm what I'm doing is right anymore because I've swayed so far away from what we were fighting for in the beginning. And it feels like he's betraying that plan. But this is, you know, in the next season, so much has changed that he now understands that plan wasn't all it. It wasn't, you know, viable at the end of the day. And what he's doing now is the right thing. And I think he is thinking about what it would be when they meet again, but also not just him who's changed, right? Thomas has changed a lot as well. And so that, you know, it, as you say, may have actually brought them closer together in their Mm -hmm. perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, I I think, and and looking at that, and I know that we had, uh, I think, way back, kind of discussed this on Twitter a, a little bit, where I think silver is the perfect blend right in the middle in terms of ideology between James and Thomas and Hmm. is the only one in the story that fully comes to understand both sides of James. He sees James and he sees Flint and he's the only one that does that and he accepts him. Now it's unfortunate that they, that he inevitably betrays him at the end you know, you can argue that that is coming from a place of love. And I do believe that. Um, Mm -hmm. But he does see, he does see all of him. And in the conversation with Maddie, where he is telling the story of what happened to Flint, you see that realization where he says, um, you know, I wasn't seeing Flint anymore. Yeah, he saw the James underneath mask. I think my theory is that the James that was initially was no longer there and he would never come back. That Flint has no. some part of him changed forever. You know, that the last vestiges of that James died when Miranda died, when she was shot in front of him. And so what he sees at the end, what, J- what John sees at the end, is not Flint, not James McGraw, the lieutenant, but somebody entirely different. Somebody who's stripped of all the other you know, personas who's stripped of his roles, who is just a man now, just James. Yeah. And there is that shine in Silver's eyes when he is, when he is saying that there is, there's this accumulation of tears that. Yeah. God. And it is now there are two ways to interpret that. And like, you can either twist the knife and say, this is the shine of a very good storyteller who is reveling in their performance, but I don't believe that to be true. I believe he truly uh, believes that. I yeah, I I believe he is he is literally seeing a memory that he is having that he is reliving this moment that was so emotional for him that he is now as he's telling Madi realizing in that moment the welling up of tears he's realizing in that moment how much he just sacrificed, how much he just gave away. You know, when Flynn says, you gave it away here in this moment, on this this island, island. with that chest. And then 30 years later, he's coming back to the island to find what he left in the ground there. It's not the chest, it's not the money. It's never been about the money. It's what he and Flynn have built, it's what they've had. And he can't get it back. And he knows that. 
And yeah, and that's why, you know, when he finds an empty uh, hole in the ground and it's not just the, the chest that is absent, he realizes he had given that away 30 years ago and he's never mm-hmm. getting it back. Yeah. Yeah. There's so, there's so much rich metaphor and so the depth of feeling in this story, it's just, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to approach, which is why it is infinitely rewatchable. There's so much of a, of a pressure of like the story crushing down on you when that, when, when the show is over, it is, I mean, it is a, it is a wonderful ending. It, it is a beautifully written ending, but the weight of that ending is what sends people immediately back to episode one, because it's like, wait, okay, can we get out from under this? Can we get out from under this? Just even, even just episode one, just the brightness of NASA, just, I need it right now. And like, I I don't know how many people I've talked to who said, as soon as it ended, they started it again. Hmm. And I I think I was just too out of it. I think it took me a whole day, eight hours. It took me to watch the last episode because I was just like doing it in bouts. um, And I was crying the whole time. Just all throughout it. Yeah. It's sobbing. It's done a number on me. And every time actually I revisit it, it just, yeah. It just does me in. So what advice would you have uh, for people who are wanting to break into the Black Sales universe in terms of uh, fit writing? Hmm. I don't know if I'm really the person to go for advice because, again, this is my first sort of debut fit. But because I was somebody who thought I wouldn't do this and then I mm-hmm. did it and it's amazingly um, landed well with people and and people have liked it. So this was a success. I am saying, well, okay, the way I wrote this, I just went with the flow. I was, I couldn't sleep one night. And this is entirely autobiographical because I was thinking about, well, how Flint is also probably a light sleeper or an insomniac. So I was kind of projecting on. So yeah, the first line was Flint couldn't sleep uh, because I couldn't sleep. And then I just went on, you know, with the, the, the flow of this sort of uh, stream of consciousness and it it is entirely self-indulgent but I think my advice would be don't afraid don't be afraid of like don't fear don't shy away from self-indulgent writing if that's what's holding you back it might be sometimes the thing that you really bring out that will touch people that will land with them yeah and it is such a beautiful kind of a moment in time, just this, it captures just this ambient resonance within Flint, um, which I think is beautifully illustrated because now I'm going to bring up uh, Kelsey's um, cover art that oh, I just so I, I am, I am it, just so floored. I it's, gasped. Oh. It's stunning absolutely stunning i asked her and one of the things that you know i'm just gonna yeah so i when i am working on an episode um i get to a point and i bring in kelsey and just give them the bare bones idea of a piece and this is the general idea this is the mood here's a link to the fic and um i said i said can can you have it done and it ended up being a week and a half 
they did it in three days and it was amazing uh, amazing amazing by the time you listen to this you will have seen it and i will have posted it everywhere uh a billion times um but, um it is it's absolutely as you should yeah it's so beautiful so beautiful kelsey amazing as always but um this one is just so so beautiful and and beautifully captures the spirit of this story it's just gorgeous just gorgeous well i want to thank you so so much for taking the time to talk with me about this and allowing me um to feature your story i know that you know this is an emotional time for you you know a difficult time for you reflecting on family but i just want to thank you for for taking the time um i know that the fandom is going to be very excited to listen and to be able to get your perspective out, especially at a time where Ukrainian voices are being crushed. And I think it's very important um, that, you know, just in my little corner of the internet and uh, my little podcast that, you know, I'm able to uh, let you be heard. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much for having me on the podcast. It has been an honor and has been uh, amazing to talk to you and yes to to share my own thoughts about all of this that um you know i'm always always willing to talk about this show to anyone who's willing to listen and you also had a lot of amazing and insightful things to say and I, i'm just like i really really love this conversation that we've had thank you so and much I hope that people love my thing I'm sure they do. And, and I hope that I'm able to do it justice. I'm, I'm just so excited for this episode and thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lucky. It has been an honor and a privilege to have you on the podcast. And for your guidance on the Ukrainian and Polish pronunciation, my apologies for any shortcomings in that regard. You can trust that my heart was in the right place. Thank you to Kelsey, aka Magic Bubble Pipe, who drew the gorgeous sketch of Flint imprisoned in the fort under that glorious shaft of light featured online for today's story. You can find them on Tumblr at Magic Bubble Pipe and on Patreon. Kelsey does stunning work and takes commissions, so definitely check them out. And thank you to all of our listeners, whether you're returning or joining us for the first time. We appreciate you, and we'd love to hear from you. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It truly does help us to be discovered by more listeners, which helps to shine a brighter spotlight on these amazing artists and creators. If you're a fanfic author and have a favorite story you'd love to hear and want to join me on the podcast, please reach out to me on Twitter at Kentraspring or at AudioficPod, or you can send an email to readingbetweenthelinespod at gmail.com. If you're not an author, but you've got a favorite fic you'd like me to read, all suggestions are welcome. Please reach out. Thanks again for listening. This has been Reading Between the Lines, a fanfic audio podcast. And I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.